the stone won't fall until the podcast of the dragon comes to your device. Hey everybody, my name is Morgan. You might know me as the Grey Warder on Twitter and Discord. Welcome to episode 20 of Podcast of the Dragon. How does Egwene, over the course of a single book, go from a panic-stricken trauma victim to a cold, hard badass who terrorizes the Black Aja in the world of dreams? Because she's written by a master of characterization, that's how. Today, I'll examine Robert Jordan's arc for her through The Dragon Reborn and break down his layers of artistic, writery brilliance. I've more or less made it pretty clear over the course of the podcast that Egwene Alvere is my favorite character. And while technically Moraine is my favorite character until book five, and Egwene only rises to the top once she quote-unquote dies, I think that Egwene has the best story of the entire series. And while I don't think that she's RJ's best written character, that's a distinction that I think belongs to Nynaeve, I think the story arc that Egwene has is tremendous. What happens with her is so exciting and compelling, and the way that she deals with it is so riveting that she cannot help but be my favorite. I never said that I could be friends with her. Egwene, like pretty much everyone from the Two Rivers, with maybe Matt being the exception, is way too prudish, and she's judgy about people who exist outside of her idea of sexual propriety. She's pretty open-minded about most everything else, but she will always think judgy thoughts about anybody whose sexual behavior deviates from what she considers proper, and I find that really tiresome. She's also too serious. Her humor is just a bit too mild for me, and she's not diplomatic enough. To be fair, most people from the Two Rivers are not particularly diplomatic. Their quote-unquote Two Rivers stubbornness is in some ways a euphemism for I don't really want to admit that I'm wrong or to back down. And most of the Two Rivers folk have that in one way or another, depending on their level of self-awareness and their willingness to grow. I feel like Perrin is probably the best Two Rivers person for being willing to look at things from other people's points of view and give a little. So those personality traits mean that I don't think that Egwene is friend material. But I'm not reading this story to make friends. I'm reading this story to live vicariously through someone else's badassery. And what happens to Egwene, it was constantly surprising the first time that I read it. Just a delight of twists and turns. This brilliant creative forging to continually increase her strength and formidability where it's sort of like constantly shitty things happen to her, but she just rises above and rises above and rises above, and it's beautiful. When I realized my first time reading The Wheel of Time that RJ had major plans for Egwene, it was subtle, because I had to reread over and over again, you know. I had to wait for the fifth book, but I only had to wait for a few months, and then I had to wait a year for the sixth book, and then after that, it was multiple years to wait. So I reread The Wheel of Time endlessly in high school, and I was getting the beginning of her story arc and her character arc over and over, and really kind of consuming that and digesting that. With book five, it ends with her being hurt by Lanfear before Maureen tackles her and they fall through the redstone doorway into the lands of the evil Eelfin. 
At that point, I knew Egwene was going interesting places, but I had no idea where. She's just this wise one's apprentice at that point, and she's studying dreaming, and I remember thinking to myself that it was a better fit for her than Tarvalon. And then once book six came out, and she becomes the Amarlin's seat, and it leaves off where she is still in a weak position of power, but she has nonetheless managed to gather her armies, send Elaine and Nynaeve off to Ibudar, let Loghain go, and use the presence of the Band of the Red Hand to maneuver the Aes Sedai into leaving Saladar and marching toward Tyler Fallon. So she's politically weak, but crafty and talented and good at making use of limited resources, and it was so exciting to read over and over again and wonder, what is this girl going to do? Because holy shit, she is smart and devious. Egwene's story was such a surprise to me. I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't this mirroring of Rand, who gets dropped into this position of authority and power and tremendous soul-crushing responsibility where he has no choice. He can't say no. It's his duty. Egwene has the same thing happen to her. She's dropped into this situation where it's like, you're going to be the next Amarlin seat. Oh, you don't get to say no. And the summons is the same as when you get summoned for a trial. So if they raise you, sucks to suck. Sorry, you know, you're our sacrificial lamb and it's too bad. We chose you and now the job is yours. So she's not chosen by the pattern, but she's chosen by the women and the organization that she has gladly given her life to. And then they gladly turn around and throw her under the bus. And so her position is very much similar to Rand's in a lot of ways. And once she realizes the Salatar Six are going to do what they're going to do in putting her forward, and the Hall of the Tower is going to do what it's going to do in raising her, she figures, well, if I can't say no, I'm going to run with it. Whatever they do, I'm not going to be their little puppet. They gave me this job, and now it's mine. Because she got to watch Rand struggle with High Lords trying to control him, and got to see him as he fought to deal with people who were trying to influence him and get him to do things, including an Aes Sedai. She already had an idea of how to maneuver from a position of weakness just from watching him try to, like, run that gauntlet. Except that Egwene's far more politically weak than Rand is because people aren't fucking terrified of her. But she goes into it and she's like, okay, fuck it, we ball, let's go. And that willingness to just dive into the job that gets dropped into her lap that she has no choice but to do is glorious and it makes me love her. Like, I could not be her friend, but I love being in her head. Especially once she gets this job where she's like, you're fucking kidding me, right? I'm not Aes Sedai. I'm a fucking accepted. I am 18 years old. Really? You're joking. And when they're like, oh no, we're not joking. She's like, okay, okay. You asked for it. And it's great. It's fucking great. So the story that RJ wrote for her was just constantly surprising, and I noticed as I waited for books to come out that it was the newest bits of her machinations that I was most looking forward to as she got stronger and cleverer and just more devious and her creative forging took more twists and turns. It was so great. Especially because at first she seemed kind of like this weird sidekick girl, like once when they're leaving Emmons Field, once you realize, wait, she's not the girlfriend. She and Rand aren't going to be a couple. Like, Min lets us know that early on. So it's like, okay, well, is she kind of the random token female character who's never interesting enough to get a fully developed arc? Because I had read 
stories, I had read a number of stories where there's the girl who is more or less a sidekick, like a girl thrown in, so there's someone with a vagina to add variety to the group, and sometimes she and the hero end up getting married at the end of the story, and so at least you're fortunate enough to not have to see their tiresome relationship, but she never has much more to her than that because the male characters are the focus of the story. But here, pretty quickly you realize, no, she's her own thing. And you actually have this whole mirroring. And, you know, seeing that and watching that whole thing play out and having RJ be able to compare and contrast the difference between what happens when you accept fate versus fighting fate, what happens when you volunteer to be a soldier versus being drafted, how Egwene deals with trauma versus how Rand deals with trauma. Egwene embraces her friends and Rand pushes his away. Egwene acknowledges hard truths about leadership and doesn't make them a commentary on herself. Rand punishes himself for those hard truths and thinks his willingness to make use of people and see his friends as tools makes him a monster rather than someone with a hard job to do. Over and over again, there's this constant paralleling, and it's a beautiful compare-contrast. Rand would not be nearly as interesting without Egwene, and just as much he makes her interesting too. Because watching how she follows him, you know, it, he has this very kind of traditional hero's arc of the chosen one, and he hits all those tropes. So she doesn't have to hit any tropes. She gets to be something new and creative for Robert Jordan to be able to play off of the chosen one trope. And so I love Egwene, and I love her story. And when I say I couldn't be friends with her, I don't mean that I don't think she's a good person. Twitter of Time and Wheel of Time fans in general are really divided between those who absolutely stan her, those who think she is awful in a general sort of way, and those who think she is this power-thirsty, egotistical person who's apparently the one that Lanfear should have been talking to all of this time about the glory. And obviously one of the things that makes people so anti-Egwene is the chapter in the Fires of Heaven where she sets the melty, rapey dream monsters on Nynaeve. And I've explained my feelings about this before, but I'll just restate that I think it's an inaccurate scene that's untrue to Egwene's character. And I feel like if you were to ask Robert Jordan, was it your intent that people take from that scene that Egwene used those melty, rapey monsters to sexually assault Nynaeve, he would look at you with a shocked Pikachu face. I find it impossible to believe that he intended that, and so I don't take that scene at face value. I think it's one of the most poorly written and inaccurate scenes in the entire story, and I've discussed that in a previous episode, of course, but I will just say it again because it's a disturbing scene. And if people let it color their view of Egwene, they have a fucking right to because it's in the book. I just don't because I don't think it's accurate. I don't think that that is what Robert Jordan wanted people to take from that scene, and so I don't. There's this one person in particular on Twitter who thinks that Egwene is just insane for power, and everything that she does throughout the story is all to suit her own ends and her thirst for domination. And, you know, it's like, think how you think about the characters and feel how you feel. I'm not here to tell someone that they're wrong for how they feel or for their perceptions of things, you know? It's literature. Interpret it. It's not fucking real. Who cares? But this person not only holds that opinion, they are sanctimonious in their belief that other people's opinions about Egwene are wrong. And that's obnoxious, but even worse, this person is kind enough to tell those of us who don't agree with him that Egwene is a power-thirsty, egotistical monster 
that not only are our viewpoints wrong, but deep down, we know that we're wrong, and we should just admit it because we know that she's evil and terrible, and when we refuse to agree, we're just willfully ignoring the truth. And while that person is an absurd and condescending prick, in general, I think that there's something great about a character like Egwene who people can be so divided on because that makes her incredibly compelling. And while I do think RJ did her dirty with that scene in the fires of heaven because I want people to be divided on her based upon scenes that I feel are actually true to her character, what are you going to do? The Dragon Reborn is an interesting book for Gwaine, and I've honestly always really struggled with her arc in it, and before now I never really took the time to try and ask myself why. So when thinking about it through this book and asking myself a handful of questions, I'm realizing that RJ is doing a massive amount of character development for her in this book, an extremely layered buildup, and he's doing it because he's got a whole bunch of different things to showcase with her growth, and he's got to do them all before she can go to the waste, which means he's got one book to do it. At the same time, he's also having to focus on Perrin and Matt and developing their characters, and he has to give a bit of attention to both Nynaeve and Sumter Rand so that their stories can be brought along and we can see at least some of their progression. For Egwene, he's got to show her trauma and the fallout of everything to do with the Shanshan. He has to show the degeneration of her relationship with Nynaeve. He has to show her growth as she hardens and how she increases her smarts. He has to show her acceptance test. Not so much because it's necessary, but it's interesting and he does use it for a little bit of world building. He has to have her learn about Teleron Riyadh and start exploring her dreaming talent, and he has to have her arc in this book finish up in a way where it shows her capable of being someone who can not only live with the Aiel, but embrace their culture. You see her at the end and you're like, this person is someone capable of major badassery. So, one of my problems with Egwene's arc in The Dragon Reborn is that she is fucking obnoxious in this book. Her trauma means that she's an irritable, annoying asshole throughout. And with Randland short on therapists, and with some of the most horrible trauma in the entire series, when it comes to the kind of trauma that attacks you at the core of who you are and tries to break you down and rebuild you, Egwene was forced to kind of just psychologically dust herself off and work through her shit as best as she could as they traveled from Tome and Head over the winter. And so RJ shows her, at the beginning of the book, just extremely irritable and kind of hair-trigger to get upset. And Nynaeve is the one who bears the brunt of her anger. And it makes sense that Nynaeve is going to do that. Nynaeve is used to problems that she can treat, and Nynaeve is a fixer. And since trauma is not a problem that Nynaeve is used to, and definitely not something she can fix, she's trying to help, and Egwene does not want her sympathy. She doesn't want her help, and she finds her overbearing. It says, as they're making their approach to Tarvalon before they have the run-in with the White Cloaks, Nynaeve seemed to forget too often that she was not the wisdom of Emmons Field any longer, and Egwene was no longer a child. But she wears the ring, and I do not, yet. And for her, that means nothing has changed. And a little bit further, Nynaeve asks her if her dreams have been troubling her again. Nynaeve sounded concerned, but Egwene was in no mood to accept sympathy. Next book, RJ is going to do what he has likely wanted to do for ages. He's going to split Nynaeve and Egwene, 
He knows that Egwene cannot fully grow with Nynaeve there. For her to have real maturation and development, they cannot be together. Because Nynaeve is constantly checking Egwene and pushing back, and Nynaeve always has an opinion about something that she should do with her life. And so he has this one book to make sure that all of his readers will sigh with relief when he sends Nynaeve and Egwene to opposite ends of the world. And I sure as hell do. Because I want to strangle Egwene for what a contrary asshole she is to Nynaeve throughout this book. While at the same time I sympathize with her 100% because Nynaeve is the kind of person where if you give her an inch, she'll take a mile. And I can imagine Egwene's anxiety and how smothered she feels and how Nynaeve's good intentions are just not what she's looking for right now. You know, I was a depressed and insane teenager because my mental illness was not regulated and I was just starting to have manic episodes. And it's obviously not the same as dealing with trauma, but it is something filled with anxiety and bad mood swings and just general, like, you know, feeling racing thoughts and feeling trapped and scared and smothered. And I would basically want my mom to fuck off. My mom just wanted to help me, obviously, and she would want to touch me or give me hugs or whatever, and I felt so smothered. And so I was really shitty to her for a couple of years. I apologized, I promised, and I feel really bad about it still, but I was a real shit for a while because it was just kind of like I just needed space. I didn't need her help. She could not help me. And so I can put myself mentally in Egwene's space of feeling that sense of being trapped and wanting openness and fresh air and also just not wanting Nynaeve's fucking opinion or her sympathy because she's just over it, you know? There's very little that she can do to help. Nothing will help. Egwene's got to figure this shit out on her own. So when they begin their hunt for the Black Aja, Elaine is perfectly happy to defer to Nynaeve. Because Elaine trusts Nynaeve's judgment. They were together at Falma. She knows that she's smart, sensible, makes good choices. She's older. She has more life experience. And Elaine feels like it is logical for Nynaeve to be in charge. But for Egwene, there's just too much baggage. There's too many memories. And she just feels so smothered. And so she has to butt heads. Once they leave the tower and they're out in the world and Nynaeve tries to take charge, Egwene just has to resist. The chapter where they're sailing down the Aranen, right before they hit the sunken boat that disables their ship and causes them to be ferried onto the shore of Kyrian, where they end up meeting the Aiel, there's mention of multiple arguments. And RJ writes it really well. It's not just Nynaeve wanted to do this and Egwene decided to do this. Like, you know, Egwene decided that they should all pass themselves off as full sisters, even though Nynaeve felt like she was the only one that was old enough. And Nynaeve decided that they should all dress in wool, even though Egwene is like, well, I said I always wear their best clothes. RJ specifically in the language is like, this is an argument that Egwene won. That was an argument that Nynaeve won. It's just argument, argument, argument. And then there's mention of Elaine on the side trying to be the peacemaker. So they get caught on the sunken boat. Nynaeve has told the captain to bring them ashore because she doesn't want to wait. And Egwene says... You were thinking of leaving the ship, Egwene asked. Do you think that is wise? Of course it's... Nynaeve stopped and frowned at her. Egwene returned the frown with a level stare. Nynaeve went on in a calmer tone, if still a tight one. 
The captain says it may be an hour before another ship comes along, one with enough sweeps to make a difference, or a day, or two, maybe. I do not think we can afford to waste a day or two waiting. We can be in this village—what did you call it, Captain? Jereen? We can walk to Jereen in two hours or less. If Captain Ellisor frees his vessel as quickly as he hopes, we can reboard then. He says he will stop to see if we are there. If he does not get free, though, we can take ship from Jereen. We may even find a vessel waiting. The captain says traitors do stop there because of the Andoran soldiers. She drew a deep breath, but her voice grew tighter. Have I explained my reasoning fully enough? Do you need more? It is clear to me, Elaine put in quickly before Egwene could speak, and it sounds a good idea. You think it is a good idea, too, don't you, Egwene? Egwene gave a grudging nod. I suppose it is. So... Nynaeve makes unilateral decisions, and Egwene is not here for it. I always feel really bad for Elaine here, because she is such a diplomat, and for her this is both ridiculous and obnoxious. I think she probably sympathizes with Egwene at least a little, because Nynaeve is so blunt and frustrating and tactless. That's one of Elaine's big complaints about her, but Elaine is not as troubled by Nynaeve's temper as other people are. I think probably because Nynaeve reminds her of Linny a little, and she also knows that Egwene is being a dick, and that Nynaeve is ultimately right. Elaine also understands leadership. She understands the chain of command, and she feels that Swan put Nynaeve in charge. It probably never occurred to Swan, oh, I should put Nynaeve in charge. For her, the Aes Sedai way of figuring rank is so reflexive that of course Nynaeve would be in charge. She's the most powerful. The other girls just became accepted, and she's the oldest. All three of these things would give someone precedence. And so Nynaeve is in charge, and Swan would never think that she would need to specify that. Not only does Elaine intuit that Nynaeve is in charge based upon logic and common sense, Elaine trusts Nynaeve to be in charge because they had their power romance in Falma. Or, I guess with women it's called a womance. And she's happy to have Nynaeve take the lead because she feels like having Nynaeve in the lead can definitely ensure that they might get out of this alive. I'm not sure why she assumes that just because it happened the last time, but, you know. I think Elaine has a blind spot when it comes to Nynaeve. I know she does. She loves Nynaeve and I think she hero-worships her to a certain extent. So, you know. Regardless, Elaine knows that the mission that they are on right now is very important and extremely dangerous, and she's not happy about the situation that she finds herself in, with her two friends being really dickheaded to each other and the tension between them, because frankly, who likes to be a third wheel to another pair's conflict? It sucks. So after Egwene has grudgingly agreed that it's a good idea to walk down the riverbank on the Kyrian inside with the brigands lurking under cover of the Civil War, and when I said Nynaeve was right, I didn't mean about that particular thing. It says, Nynaeve opened her mouth, glanced at Egwene, and seemed to change what she had intended to say. I am going below for my things, she told the heir halfway between Egwene and Elaine, then turned on Elisor. Captain, make your rowboat ready. He bowed and scurried away even before she turned for the hatch and was shouting for men to put the boat over the side before she was below. If one of you says up, Elaine murmured, the other says down. If you do not stop it, we may not reach Tyr. We will reach Tyr, Egwene said, and sooner once Nynaeve realizes she is not the wisdom any longer. We are all, she did not say accepted. There were too many men hurrying about. On the same level now. Elaine sighed. 
In short order, the rowboat had ferried them ashore, and they were standing on the bank with walking staffs in hand, their belongings in bundles on their backs, and hung about them in pouches and scripts. Rolling grassland and scattered copses surrounded them, though the hills were forested a few miles in from the river. The sweeps on the blue crane were cutting up froth, but failing to budge the vessel. Egwene turned and started south without another glance, and before Nynaeve could take the lead. When the others caught up to her, Elaine gave her a reproving look. Nynaeve walked staring straight ahead. I feel mildly bad for Nynaeve here, because she's mostly the one who's the recipient of Egwene's temper. I'd feel worse for her, but Nynaeve is an irritable person, and a toxic enough person that while I don't know that I believe Egwene was her constant punching bag while she was her apprentice, I know that getting lashed out at by someone who's always irritable, even if they're not being deliberately meanly abusive to you, is detrimental to your morale. And so I don't feel 100% bad for Nynaeve, because I feel like Egwene might be cashing in on years of resentment. You know, my mom was very irritable when I was young. She had a stressful job, and, you know, it wasn't like she was mean to me, and it wasn't like, you know, she was abusive or anything, but she was just irritable so often. And I was very resentful about it as I was older, and I made her pay for it as a teenager. I understand where Egwene is coming from, wanting to pay Nynaeve back for that, now that she finally is in a position where she feels like she can. The honeymoon phase of Nynaeve and Egwene out in the world together is ending. It's sort of like, at first when Nynaeve showed up at the stag and lion, I'm sure Egwene was like, fuck. That was not what I wanted. I was trying to get out and do my own thing. And I'm sure that there were a handful of days when Egwene was really unhappy that Nynaeve was on the journey. And then after shit got real on the Camelon Road and in Shatter Logoth, I think that Egwene was perfectly happy to have Nynaeve along, and especially after they got rescued from the White Cloaks. She seeks out Nynaeve's comfort as a way to help cope with the trauma. The world has shown that it is scary enough that Nynaeve is no longer an overbearing drag, a mildly toxic older sister-slash-mom figure. She's reassuring, and it was wonderful to have her come to the tower so she did not have to face Tarvalon alone. And it was nice having her out in the world, and Egwene was glad of her companionship and her steadiness. And that is coming to an end. Now she feels like she can't breathe. And so Egwene is lashing out. All of the conflict between Nynaeve and Egwene comes to a head after they've gotten to Tyr. Nynaeve finds the shop of the wise woman, Alu and Gwenna, and is getting her to help them. They give their aliases to her, and because Nynaeve doesn't want to stay at an inn, she asks Mother Gwenna if she has a spare room that she can rent from her. It says, I've three empty bedrooms upstairs, now my daughters are all married. My husband, the light shine on him, was lost in a storm in the fingers of the dragon near twenty years ago. There need be no talk of hiring if I decide to let you have the rooms. If, Mariam. Stirring honey into her tea, she studied them again. What will make you decide? Nynaeve asked quietly. Al Ewing continued to stir as if she had forgotten to drink. Three young women riding fine horses. I don't know much about horses, but those look as fine as what the lords and ladies ride to me. You, Miriam, know enough of the craft that you ought to have hung herbs in your window already, or she'll be choosing where to do it. I've never heard of a woman practicing the craft too far from where she was born, but by your tongue you are a long way. She glanced at Elaine. 
Not many places with hair that color. And or, I'd say, about your speech. Fool men are always talking about finding a yellow-haired and or girl. What I want to know is why. Running away from something? Or running after something? Only you don't look like thieves to me, and I've never heard of three women chasing after a man together. So tell me why, and if I like it, the rooms are yours. If you want to pay something, you buy a bit of meat now and then. Meat is dear since the trade-up to Kyrie N fell away. But first the why, Miriam. We are chasing after something, I'll you and Nynaeve said. Or rather, after some people. Egwene schooled herself to stillness and hoped she was doing as well as Elaine, who was sipping her tea as if she were listening to talk about dresses. Egwene did not believe Aluin Gwenna's dark eyes missed a great deal. They stole some things, Aluin, Nynaeve went on, from my mother, and they did murder. We are here to see justice done. Burn my soul, the large woman said. Have you no men folk? Men are not good for much beyond heavy hauling and getting in the way most of the time and kissing and such. But if there's a battle to be fought or a thief to catch, I say let them do it. Andor is as civilized as Tyr. You are not Aiel. There was no one but us, Nynaeve said. Those who might have come in our place were killed. The three murdered Aes Sedai, Egwene thought. They could not have been Black Aja. But if they had not been killed, the Amarlin would not have been able to trust them. She's trying to keep to the bloody three oaths, but she is skirting it close. Ah, oh, and said sadly. They killed your men? Brothers or husbands or fathers? Spots of color bloomed in Nynaeve's cheeks, and the older woman mistook the emotion. No, don't tell me, girl. I'll not pull up old grief. Let it lie on the bottom till it melts away. There, there, you calm yourself. It was an effort for Egwene not to growl with disgust. I must tell you this, Nynaeve said in a stiff voice. The red still colored her face. These murderers and thieves are dark friends. They are women, but they are as dangerous as any swordsman, I Ewan. If you wondered why we did not seek an inn, that is why. They may know we follow, and they may be watching for us. Ewan waved it all away with a sniff. Of the four most dangerous folk I know, two are women who never carry as much as a knife, and only one of the men is a swordsman. As for dark friends... Mariam, when you are as old as I, you'll learn that false dragons are dangerous, lionfish are dangerous, sharks are dangerous, and sudden storms out of the south. But dark friends are fools, filthy fools, but fools. The dark one is locked up where the creator put him, and no fetches or fangfish to scare children will get him out. Fools don't frighten me unless they're working the boat I'm riding. I suppose you don't have any proof you could take to the defenders of the stone? It would be just your word against theirs? What is a fetch? Egwene wondered, or a fangfish for that matter. We will have proof when we find them, Nynaeve said. They will have the things they stole, and we can describe them. They are old things and of little value to anyone but us and our friends. You would be surprised what old things can be worth, Ewan said dryly. Old Louise Moulin pulled up three heartstone bowls and a cup in his nets last year down in the fingers of the dragon. Now instead of a fishing smack, he owns a trading ship up the river— Old fool did not even know what he had till I told him. Very likely there's more right where those came from, but Louise couldn't even remember the exact spot. I do not know how he ever managed to get a fish into his net. Half the fishing boats in Tyr were down there for months afterwards, dragging for Quaindiar, not grunts or flatfish, and some had lords saying where to pull the nets. That's what old things can be worth if they are old enough. Now, I've decided you do need a man in this, and I know just the one. Who? Nynaeve said quickly, if you mean a lord, one of the high lords, remember we have no proof to offer till we find them. Alguin laughed until she wheezed. Girl, nobody from the mall knows a high lord or any kind of lord. Mudfish don't school with silver sides. I will bring you the dangerous man I know who isn't a swordsman, and the more dangerous of the two at that. 
Julian Sandar is a thief-catcher, the best of them. I do not know how it is in Andor, but here a thief-catcher will work for you or me as soon as for a lord or a merchant and charge less at that. Julin can find these women for you if they can be found, and bring your things back without you having to go near these dark friends. Nynaeve agreed as if she still were not entirely sure, and Al Ewan tied those platforms to her shoes, clogs she called them, and hurried out. Egwene watched her go through one of the kitchen windows past the horses and around the corner up the alley. You are learning how to be Aes Sedai, Mariam, she said as she turned from the window. You manipulate people as well as Moraine. Nynaeve's face went white. Elaine stalked across the floor and slapped Egwene's face. Egwene was so shocked she could only stare. You go too far, the golden-haired woman said sharply. Too far. We must live together or we will surely die together. Did you give Al Ewan your true name? Nynaeve told her what we could, that we seek dark friends, and that was risk enough linking us with dark friends. She told her they were dangerous, murderers. Would you have had her say they are Black Aja, in tear? Would you risk everything on whether Al Ewan would keep that to herself? Egwene rubbed her cheek gingerly. Elaine had a strong arm. I do not have to like doing it. I know, Elaine sighed. Neither do I, but we do have to. Egwene turned back to peering through the window at the horses. I know we do, but I do not have to like it. And I love that scene because Egwene had that coming. And because as someone who is very, very fond of Elaine, who is a person that has not an infinite store of patience, but she's a pretty patient person and very diplomatic and makes a strong effort to be empathetic and understand where people are coming from. It is glorious to watch her hitting her breaking point and just being like, I've had enough of this bullshit and hauling off and smacking Egwene. I love Elaine having a bit of catharsis there and being able to do that because she deserves to. And while that doesn't end the conflict between Egwene and Nynaeve exactly, it does shift enough of a balance. It's kind of like Elaine manages to say in her own way, your fucking relationship is toxic and I've had enough of your bullshit. And, you know, as diplomatic as Elaine is, because she has to know that a lot of Egwene's resentments toward Nynaeve are fair, and she cannot bring that up to Nynaeve and try to have a reasonable diplomatic conversation and say, so... You know, she's not being unfair to feel like you're smothering her or infantilizing her or whatever, because Nynaeve cannot tolerate any criticism or accept it with any kind of grace, nor is she in a place where she's willing to be lectured on the art of letting go by a well-meaning teenage princess. So I think Elaine really feels frustrated because she's sort of stuck between two Two Rivers folk who are both kind of assholes, but Egwene is going way too fucking far. Even though she knows that Egwene's resentments are not unreasonable, Elaine is just like, now is not the time or place to work this shit out. I am someone who always apologizes. I feel like apologizing is one of my strengths. And yet, because some of her frustrations are fair, I understand why Egwene doesn't tell Nine if she's sorry. I don't think she's right not to tell her that she's sorry, but I get why she doesn't. It says... Egwene finally returned to the table in her tea. She thought perhaps Elaine was right, that she had gone too far, but she could not bring herself to apologize, and they sat in silence. I understand. She feels like Nynaeve's a hypocrite. She hates on Aes Sedai. She hates on Moraine. She hates on everything that Egwene wants to do with her life, and then even when she accepts it, she constantly has to make digs, and she's always got a shitty thing to say. 
She's always just talking shit and smothering and trying to tell her what to do with her life. Then she turns around and just masterfully manipulates this woman. And Egwene decides to say something really shitty and awful and insult her in a way that she knows will hurt. And I think partly it's just to hold a mirror up in her face and say, look, however much you hate them, you are good at being one. And it's a dick move. And I get why it's hard for her to say she's sorry at the same time, because I remember being a shitty teenager who's angry and anxious and wanting to lash out at an adult who has a lot of say in your life or who has had a lot of say in your life and can be irritable and overbearing. But nonetheless, Egwene is behaving like a fucking child. And I don't like childishness. I claim I don't like children, but really I just don't like childishness. And at least children have the excuse to be childish in that they're children. Egwene is not a child, and so whatever excuses she has as far as her trauma and the fact that her relationship with Nynaeve is toxic and that she's over their dynamic and all of the shit that's going on in her life, whatever mental health issues that you're having, you never have an excuse to be a dick to the people in your life. It is not cool. You have to manage your shit. And Egwene has gotten to the point towards the end of the story where she is coming to understand that. It says, As night deepened, Al Ewan showed them each to a bedroom on the second floor, but after she had gone to her own, they gathered in Egwene's by the light of a single lamp. Egwene had already undressed to her shift. The cord hung round her neck with the two rings. The striped stone felt far heavier than the gold. This was what they had done every night since leaving Tarvalon, with the sole exception of that night with the Aiel. Wake me after an hour, she told them. Elaine frowned. So short this time? Do you feel uneasy? Nynaeve said. Perhaps you were using it too often. We would still be in Tarfallon scrubbing pots and hoping to find a black sister before a grey man found us if I had not, Egwene said sharply. Light, Elaine's right, I am snapping like a sulky child. RJ never really resolves the conflict between Nynaeve and Egwene, but at least he has Egwene move past her anger and resentment in this book, mostly. I think the way that he does it is kind of cheesy. There's this device of Nynaeve humming a lullaby, which she does when they're first doing Dreaming back in Tarvalon, and Egwene feels resentful about it and thinks that she's not a kid. And then towards the end, they're in the cell in the Stone of Tear, and Egwene has attacked and stilled Amiko Nagoyan in the world of dreams, but it has not yet broken the shields on them. So she's going back to sleep to return to Tel Iran Riyadh and figure out why it's not working and how to fix it. And she specifically asks Nynaeve to sing to her to help her sleep. And it's really corny and I don't care for it. But I can't think of anything else that would be a good thing to do. And it does get the point across, which is Egwene gives occasional consent for Nynaeve to behave in a motherly fashion. And otherwise she needs to treat her like a fucking adult. I think splitting Egwene off from Nynaeve is the best thing that RJ could have done for both of them. And he's so talented at characterization that he manages to show through just a minor Nynaeve POV, because we get almost nothing through her eyes in this book, but he gives us enough to show that she's moving past the conflict and making an effort to understand Egwene. Nynaeve's going to buy some meat from the butcher as they're waiting to hear back from Julian Sandar about whether or not he's found the Black Aja. She will return to Mother Gwenna's house, and the Black Aja will be waiting for her and have captured Elaine and Egwene and beaten Egwene unconscious. But it says, 
These people had had only one bad year, and their fisheries and their other trades seemed to be flourishing. She had no patience with them. The trouble was she knew that she should have a little patience. They were odd people with odd ways, and things she took for cringing they seemed to see as a matter of course, even Al Ewan and Sandar. She should be able to summon up just a little patience. If for them, why not for Egwene? She put that aside. The child behaved wretchedly, snapping at the most obvious suggestions, objecting to the most sensible things. Even when it was plain what they should do, Egwene wanted to be convinced. Niney was not used to having to convince people, especially not people she had changed swaddling clothes for. The fact that she was only a matter of seven years older than Egwene was of no account. So that's actually a really brilliant little bit of writing there. You know, she's realizing she should probably be patient with Egwene because she's going through a lot, and maybe deep down inside where she would never actually admit it to herself, she knows that Egwene has cause to want to push her away and be like, give me space and treat me like a fucking adult. RJ shows how she refers to Egwene as a child in her inner narrative and ends it with Nynaeve, as always, trying to reinforce her self-delusion by saying things to convince herself, so he has her tell herself that the fact that she's only seven years older than Egwene doesn't matter, that doesn't count, and so she's kind of struggling and almost there, and that's just great, subtle writing. He manages to bring Nynaeve's character along a ton with minimal words in that POV. PTSD manifests with lots of different symptoms, and one of the common ones is simply anger and irritability. To do justice to what Egwene went through, and to be realistic, RJ had to explore Egwene's trauma. And it's straightforward to explore trauma in her being panicky and afraid of being chained again. So he's having her have outbursts about that, having her have nightmares, and then picking a single symptom to explore in depth and to show us here. She's angry, she's irritable, she's really struggling here. And at the same time, he can use that particular symptom of trauma and have that do double duty with moving her relationship with Nynaeve along, which honestly is really pretty brilliant. It's smart, concise writing and allows for greater character development slash story development without bogging down the narrative. Because he can't only show us Egwene's growth in this book. There are two other main characters that he's exploring, and he's also exploring world-building, and he's trying to progress the main story, and he's trying to show in the background that there's this whole plot that the Forsaken are unfolding back there, and he's building on Rand's story, and there's just a whole lot going on. And because the book isn't only about Egwene, and because Egwene's trauma does not define her, and he had multiple layers of character growth to put her through in this book, he could only do so much to show us her trauma. So he explores her through the lens of irritability, and he shows us a bit of panic and fear, and he has her have the terror about recapture and nightmares. But I think he honestly shows us most poignantly at the end of the Great Hunt how her trauma manifests. We see it immediately, the moment that she regains agency. And it's not so much in how she takes care of Renna. You know, Nynaeve and Elaine and Min break in to release her from the Damani kennel. Renna comes in and Egwene smashes a pitcher into her stomach and then puts the Adam on her and uses it to basically torture her. And that's a form of vengeance. And Nynaeve's like, let's not do that. Let's leave her and Sita both here collared and that will be justice instead. And once they escape the Damani kennels and they get outside, Egwene panics. It says, Horses, Egwene said. We will need horses. 
I know the stable where they took Bella, but I don't think we can get to her. We have to leave Bella here, Nynaeve told her. We are leaving by ship. Where is everybody? Mint said, and suddenly Nynaeve realized the street was empty. The crowds were gone, not a sign of them to be seen. Every shop and window along the street were shuttered tight. But up the street from the harbor came a formation of Shanchan soldiers, a hundred or more in ordered ranks, with an officer at their head in his painted armor. They were still halfway down the street from the women, but they marched with a grim, implacable step, and it seemed to Nynaeve that every eye was fixed on her. That's ridiculous. I can't see their eyes inside those helmets, and if anybody had given an alarm, it would be behind us. She stopped anyway. There are more behind us, Min murmured. Nynaeve could hear those boots now. I don't know which will reach us first. Nynaeve took a deep breath. They are nothing to do with us. She looked beyond the approaching soldiers to the harbor, filled with tall, boxy Shanchan ships. She could not make out spray. She prayed it was still there and ready. We will walk right past them. Light, I hope we can. What if they want you to join them, Nynaeve? Elaine asked. You were wearing that dress. If they start asking questions, I will not go back. Egwene said grimly, I'll die first. Let me show them what they've taught me. To Nynaeve's eye, a golden nimbus suddenly seemed to surround her. No, she said, but it was too late. With a roar like thunder, the street under the first ranks of Shanchen erupted, dirt and cobblestones and armored men thrown aside like spray from a fountain. Still glowing, Egwene spun to stare up the street, and the thunderous roar was repeated. Dirt rained down on the women. Shouting Shanshan soldiers scattered in good order to shelter in alleys and behind stoops. In moments they were all out of sight except for those who lay around the two large holes marring the street. Some of those stirred feebly and moans drifted along the street. Niney threw up her hands, trying to look in both directions at once. You fool! We are trying not to attract attention! There was no hope of that now. She only hoped they could manage to work their way around the soldiers to the harbor through the alleys. The Demani must know, too, now. They could not have missed that. I won't go back to that collar, Egwene said fiercely. I won't. So, at the end of the Great Hunt, Egwene kills a lot of people in Hair Trigger fear that she's going to get caught again. The minute that Elaine is like, well, what if they want you to join them, Nynaeve? What if they come talk to us? Egwene's like, oh, hell no, and just blows up the ranks on both sides and probably kills... Counting the ranks, I'm figuring she probably kills about 12 soldiers. A lot. She kills a lot of people in her panic because she's at the point of anything rather than be caught. She would burn the whole town down around them rather than go back to the ADAM. And we see that same impulsive reactionary behavior at the beginning of the Dragon Reborn when they're first coming back to Tarvalon. The White Cloaks, led by Dane Bornhall, accost them before they hit the gates of the city, and Varen insists to them, Yo, people, I got this. Don't worry. Don't even sweat about it. And the girls can't shut their mouths, and they can't not make everything worse. They have to speak. Elaine is a fucking idiot, and is like, Be silent, White Cloak, and fuck off, or my mother will kick your ass. And Egwene panics. It says, he raised a hand, whether to gesture or signal his men, Egwene could not say. Some of the white cloaks gathered their reins. There's no more time to wait, Egwene thought. I will not be chained again. She opened herself to the one power. It was a simple exercise, and after long practice, it went much more swiftly than the first time she had tried. In a heartbeat, her mind emptied of everything, everything but a single rosebud floating in emptiness. 
She was the rosebud, opening to the light, opening to sight Dar, the female half of the true source. The power flooded her, threatening to sweep her away. It was like being filled with light, with the light, like being one with the light, a glorious ecstasy. She fought to keep from being overwhelmed and focused on the ground in front of the white cloak officer's horse, a small patch of ground. She did not want to kill anyone. Not this time. You will not take me. So she blows up the ground in front of the white cloaks, and Nine and Elaine help her. And Varen's upset about it, and it's funny because Egwene has two thoughts here. First, she thinks there's no more time to wait, and then she thinks I will not be chained again. So she's panicking, but her first concern is for Matt. It says a little bit earlier, Egwene bit her underlip, thinking they could not afford to be stopped or slowed, not after coming so far, not so close to Tarvalon. For Matt's sake, and for reasons that her mind might tell her were more important than the life of one village youth, one childhood friend, but that her heart could not rate so high. That condescending prick of a person who likes to tell people that not only are we wrong if we like Egwene, but we know that we're wrong, and deep down we know that she's a power-hungry person who only cares about her own self-aggrandizement, and I can't remember what the fuck else they said, but... One of the things that they put forth as proof was this bit right here, because Rand was willing to give the horn up to save Egwene at the end of the Great Hunt, and the person was implying that her bit of internal narrative here in her first POV in The Dragon Reborn shows that Egwene doesn't care about Matt. All she cares about is getting the horn to Tarvalon, and really what it says is that she's more concerned about Matt, but her logic brain, that thing that weighs the needs of the many versus the needs of the few does understand that it is more important to save the horn than to save this single person. But her heart rates Matt much higher, which, obviously, she's practical and she's a soldier and understands that the horn is a valuable thing that is needed for the last battle. But she also at the same time emotionally values Matt higher because he's her friend and she loves him. And the first thought that comes when she goes to blow up Bornhold is a sense of urgency because Matt is almost out of time. Her second fear-fueled thought is for herself. But in the grips of emotion, she doesn't think about the fucking horn at all. So that person is a dumbass. Over the course of the Dragon Reborn, if Egwene is captured or trapped or threatened with it, RJ gives us this mantra over and over again of, I will not lose my freedom. I will not be chained. And I think he did it partly so he did not have to show us Egwene being beaten unconscious by Joya Bayer and the other Black sisters when she and Elaine are captured at Igu and Gwena's house. I think RJ had enough of living inside Egwene's head while cruel, horrible things happened to her in the Great Hunt. And I'm glad, because the scenes where Egwene is to Manny are really difficult for me. Like, we know enough. We know that she panicked when the Black Aja came, and we know what her thought process was. He's already told us more or less what went down for Egwene when the Black Aja captured her, and so we don't actually have to see. And frankly, I'm glad he doesn't show it to us through Elaine's eyes either, because that would be almost as painful. Before her time with the Shanchen, Egwene is a serious person with fairly mild humor. She's young and eager, and she has a really busy brain. And she has trauma from the things that happened to her in the eye of the world, but she has it pretty well processed, or at least it's pushed aside so that she can worry about Rand. 
She really focuses on him, and I think reasonably so, because the fact that he can channel is disturbing and scary. It's like a terrible type of illness, and I think it makes sense for Egwene to be more focused on the plight of someone that she cares about who's dealing with this really terrible thing. She's moved past the stigma and is now just like, this is awful and I'm concerned. And she's focused on that rather than the traumatic things that she went through over the course of the first book. So she went to the tower with this idea of what it means to be Aes Sedai because she had an impression of what that was from Moraine. Moraine is this warrior for good. She is courageous and cool under fire, and she has a purpose out in the world to fight the Dark One, and she works out there. She's not interested in politics or maneuvering or ambition or any of the things that you see so much of in the White Tower. Fairly quickly after Gwen gets to the tower, she's betrayed by an Aes Sedai, and so it's like her innocence is destroyed, and she's now returning to the tower. She's emotionally frayed. She's absolutely fucking furious and eager for justice and vengeance. And she is convinced that Leandrin is an outlier and that the tower is still a bastion of justice and right and fairness. And she is going to return. She's going to settle in and start learning again. And it's going to go back to normal. And she thinks that there is safety there and all is right. She's centering herself as they get onto the island, and they ride through the streets of Tarvalin, and she's doing this despite the fact that Varen has never specifically said, oh yeah, Matt will 100% be healed. She's just been saying the Amaralyn will see to him, and she's not acting like she's in a hurry, and she also has not told them everything's going to be just fine when we come back. It says, Varen had pulled her cowl back up, hiding her face. No one seemed to be paying them any mind in these crowds, Egwene thought. Not even Matt and his horse litter drew a second glance, though some folk did edge away from it as they hurried past. People sometimes brought their sick to the White Tower for healing, and whatever he had might be catching. Egwene rode up beside Varen and leaned close. Do you really expect trouble now? We are in the city. We are almost there. The White Tower stood in plain sight now, the great building gleaming broad and tall above the rooftops. I always expect trouble, Varen replied placidly, and so should you. In the tower, most of all, you must all of you be more careful than ever now. Your tricks, her mouth tightened for an instant before serenity returned, frightened away the white cloaks, but inside the tower they may well bring you death or stilling. I would not do that in the tower, Egwene protested. None of us would. Nine even Elaine had joined them, leaving Huron to mind the litter horses. They nodded, Elaine fervently, and Nynaeve it seemed to Egwene as if she had reservations. You should not do it ever again, child. You must not. Ever. Varen eyed them sideways round the edge of her cowl and shook her head. And I truly hope you have learned the folly of speaking when you should be silent. Elaine's face went crimson, and Egwene's cheeks grew hot. Once we entered the tower grounds, hold your tongues and accept whatever happens— Whatever happens, you know nothing of what awaits us in the tower, and if you did, you would not know how to handle it, so be silent. Egwene, despite Leandrin's betrayal, still sees the tower as a safe place, and even more because she's an idealist and she believes in Aes Sedai, she's expecting fairness and justice when they return. She's expecting vindication, and that everything will be okay, because she cares about truth and right and what's reasonable. 
and the idea that they ran away or that they did anything wrong is preposterous. That isn't even close to what happened. And so even though Varen tells them, you really need to not say a fucking word, when Shirium shows up and is like, oh, I see you brought our runaways back, Egwene cannot help herself because that isn't what happened. And she has to set the record straight. Even though Varen has told her, you need to shut the fuck up, keep your fucking mouth shut, don't say a word once we get there, she can't help herself. They didn't run away. That isn't what happened. That's not fair. That's not right. That's not how it was. You know, the tower is truth. The tower is right. Aes Sedai don't lie. So she has to open her mouth and be like, but we didn't. We didn't. And then Varen cuts her off like, shut up. It's like RJ brings the girls back to the tower just long enough to destroy the rest of Egwene's boundless faith in Aes Sedai. And it's like, after this, she has faith in the institution and what it can be, but not necessarily faith in the people within it. Or, maybe more truthfully, she has an understanding that plenty of the people within it are corrupted, and you cannot necessarily trust someone just because she's Aes Sedai. What Rand knew from the get-go, she has finally learned. But it says here, Lying on her narrow bed, Egwene frowned up at the flickering shadows cast on the ceiling by her single lamp. She wished she could form some plan of action or reason out what to expect next. Nothing came. The shadows had more pattern than her thoughts. She could hardly even make herself worry about Matt, yet the shame she felt at that was small, crushed by the walls around her. It was a stark, windowless room, like all those in the novices' quarters, small and square and painted white, with pegs on one wall for hanging her belongings, the bed built against a second and a tiny shelf on a third, where on other days she had kept a few books borrowed from the tower library. A washstand and a three-legged stool completed the furnishings. The floorboards were almost white from scrubbing. She had done that task on hands and knees every day she had lived there, in addition to her other chores and lessons. Novices lived simply, whether they were innkeeper's daughters or the daughter heir of Andor. She wore the plain white dress of a novice again. Even her belt and pouch were white, but she felt no joy at having rid herself of the hated gray. Her room had become too much of a prison cell. What if they mean to keep me here, in this room, like a cell, like a collar? She glanced at the door. The dark accepted would still be standing guard on the other side, she knew, and rolled close to the white plastered wall. Just above the mattress was a small hole, almost invisible unless you knew where to look, drilled through into the next room by novices long ago. Egwene kept her voice to a whisper. Elaine? There was no answer. Elaine, are you asleep? How could I sleep? came Elaine's reply, a reedy whisper through the hole. I thought we might be in some trouble, but I did not expect this. Egwene, what are they going to do to us? Egwene had no answer, and her guesses were not of the sort she wanted to voice aloud. She did not even want to think of them. I actually thought we might be heroes, Elaine. We brought back the Horn of Valir safely. We discovered Leandrin is Black Aja. Her voice skipped on that. Aes Sedai had always denied the existence of a black Aja, an Aja that served the Dark One, and were known to become angry with anyone who even suggested it was real. But we know it's real. We should be heroes, Elaine. Should and would build no bridges, Elaine said. Light, I used to hate it when Mother said that to me, but it's true. Varen said we mustn't speak of the Horn or Leandrin to anyone but her the Amarlin's seat. I do not think any of this will work out the way we thought. It is not fair. We've been through so much. 
You've been through so much. It just is not fair. And I love this little moment of characterization here for Elaine. RJ shows that she is just so much more savvy and able to read situations and analyze them on a more critical and politically astute level. Despite the fact that she has a lot of impulse issues and could be a real dumbass, she's very smart. Once she knew that they were returning in a manner where their motivations were shrouded in mystery, and Varen's like, you can't talk about any of this except with the Admiral and me, you know, Elaine had to know that the real cause of their leaving the tower would not be told, and that a reason for their leaving would need to be concocted in order to explain their absence. So she had to have wondered, what are they going to say if not the truth? And surmised, oh, they're going to throw us under the bus. Despite what she's been through, the Egwene returning to the tower is still a little bit soft. At least, the Egwene who arrives in Tarvalon at the beginning of the book is not someone who could comfortably go and live with Aiel and immerse herself in their culture. But RJ's world-building and characterization is such that he doesn't have her run through a massive complex gauntlet to get her where she ends up at the end of the book, which is a person totally badass enough to go live in the Waste. He sketches a person struggling with trauma, full of emotional turmoil, experiencing conflict and upheaval in one of the most fundamental relationships in her life. He returns her to her place of safety and has her learn it's a snake pit. He has her handed a task that's crazy dangerous and way above her pay grade, throws in an attempt on her life by a new brand of shadow spawn in the Gray Man, and tops it off with the trauma bundle of the acceptance test which is a nice bit of out-of-the-narrative's-context emotional fuckery to leave a person feeling off-balance and like they're not quite sure who they are anymore. And he gives her a way to explore her talent. So she has multiple things going on to help her process and grow. And it's a lot happening concurrently. But Egwene has this amazing brain, and so I can actually see her processing her trauma on one level and struggling there while she's seizing agency on yet another level and butting heads with Nynaeve over here and working through her resentments and admitting to herself that she's being an asshole and just moving everywhere toward total badassery. So... I've heard Swan called out for the lunacy of sending Accepted on a mission to hunt the Black Aja. Like, I've heard people say, what the fuck? And they're struggling to imagine how there could ever be any justification for it. But RJ was a military historian, and obviously there are numerous examples in the history of warfare of kids with too little training being used to fill ranks because you use what you have. And how many cop movies do you see where the officers looking to root out internal corruption pluck from academies to fill out their teams because people in training are less likely to be dirty? I think Swan tapping the Supergirls to hunt the Black Aja is an underrated example of RJ writing something kind of realistic. I sometimes wonder if Swan tapping them to hunt Leandrin is related to Egwene's dream of puppets leading to puppets leading to puppets. Like, Lanfear is using them for her own ends, and then so is Swan. Swan has decided that she, with minimal resources, almost no one that she can trust, is going to make use of the fact that she is 100% positive that these people are not dark friends, and they are 100% not people that anybody would suspect, and so they are quite useful. It says, 
You two are to be my hounds, hunting the Black Aja. No one will believe it of you, not a pair of half-trained accepted I humiliated publicly. That is crazy. Nynaeve's eyes had opened wide by the time the Amarlin reached the words Black Aja, and her knuckles were white from her grip on her braid. She bit her words off and spat them. They are all full Isa die. Egwene hasn't even been raised to accept it yet, and you know I cannot channel enough to light a candle unless I am angry, not of my own free will. What chance would we have? Egwene nodded agreement. Her tongue had stuck to the roof of her mouth. Hunt the Black Aja? I'd rather hunt a bear with a switch. She's just trying to scare us, to punish us more. She has to be. If that was what the Amarlin was trying, she was succeeding all too well. The Amarlin was nodding, too. Every word you say is true, but each of you is more than a match for Leandrin in sheer power, and she is the strongest of them. Yet they are trained and you are not, and you, Nynaeve, do have limitations as yet, but when you don't have an oar child, any plank will do to paddle the boat ashore. But I would be useless, Egwene blurted. Her voice came out as a squeak, but she was too afraid to be ashamed. She means it. Oh, light, she means it. Leandrin gave me to the Shanchen, and now she wants me to hunt thirteen like her? My studies, my lessons, working in the kitchens. Anaya Sedai will surely want to continue testing me to see if I am a dreamer. I'll barely have time left over to sleep and eat. How can I hunt anything? You will have to find the time, the Amarlin said, cool and serene once more, as if hunting the Black Aja were no more than sweeping a floor. I like this whole scene because Egwene's like, oh, I'd be so useless, and Swan's just sort of like, oh no, I'm going to totally make use of you. And the next time that they're really face-to-face, -face, Swan is standing in Egwene's study instead, and Egwene is like, I'm going to make use of you, and I will have your help. And it's just a really interesting contrast. Egwene's terrified at the idea of being the Amarlin's hound, but once it appears that Nynaeve is game, so is she. It says, Egwene looked to Nynaeve, but what Nynaeve said was, why is Elaine not part of this? It can't be because you think she is Black Aja. Is it because she is daughter heir of Andor? A full net on the first cast, child. I would make her one of you if I could, but at the moment Morgaze gives me enough problems as it is. When I have her combed and curried and prodded back on the proper path, perhaps Elaine will join you. Perhaps then. Then leave Egwene out, too, Nynaeve said. She is barely old enough to be a woman. I will do your hunting for you. Egwene made a sound of protest. I am a woman. But the Amelin spoke before her. I am not setting you out as bait, child. If I had a hundred of you, I would still not be happy, but there are only you two, so two I will have. Nynaeve, Egwene said, I do not understand you. Do you mean you want to do this? It isn't that I want to, Nynaeve said wearily, but I'd rather hunt them than sit wondering if the ice that I teaching me is really a dark friend, and whatever they are up to, I do not want to wait until they're ready to find out what it is. The decision Egwene came to twisted her stomach. Then I will do it, too. I don't want to sit wondering and waiting any more than you do. Nynaeve opened her mouth, and Egwene felt a flash of anger. It was such a relief after fear. And don't you dare say I'm too young again. At least I can channel when I want to. Most of the time. I am not a little girl anymore, Nynaeve. She's not going to let Nynaeve infantilize her. She resists Nynaeve on principle at this point. She's that contrary. But this is more. She's been through too much and been too powerless. And however fucking terrifying, this is a way to take control of something. Though, it's funny that they're acting like they're choosing to do it when I'm pretty sure Swan ordered them to. 
but it's also a way to get justice on the woman who gave her to the Shachin. And so while her first immediate response is, I feel weak and useless and this is terrifying, once she takes a second to process and sees, oh yeah, Nynaeve is right, it is better to be the hunters than the hunted. I'll be dealing with the Black Aja whether or not I try to find them. I might as well make an effort and fight. When she's in the tower for the few days before they leave again to go to Tyr, RJ gives Egwene a handful of moments on her own, where we get to see her interacting with other Aes Sedai, because it's very important to take what moments he can to develop her without the other two Supergirls before they split apart. First, he has her go meet Varen, to pick up the papers that have all the information about the Black Aja, and I'll spend more time dissecting that scene when I do an episode about Varen, but I do really like how the scene shows that even when Egwene feels fear strong enough to make her want to back out of something, her really hungry brain and her insatiable curiosity sustains her. She's going to Varen's after dinner to pick up the papers, and Varen begins to tell her about dreaming, and specifically tell Iran Riyadh, and it says, A dreamer, child. A true dreamer can enter Teliron Riyadh. Egwene tried to swallow, but a lump in her throat stopped her. Enter it? I I don't think I am a dreamer, Varen Sedai. Anaya Sedai's tests. Varen cut her off. Prove nothing one way or the other. And Anaya still believes that you may very well be one. I suppose I will learn whether I am or not eventually, Egwene mumbled. Light, I want to be, don't I? I want to learn. I want it all. You have no time to wait, child. The Omerlin has entrusted a great task to you and Nynaeve. You must reach out for any tool you might be able to use. Varen dug a red wooden box from under the welter on her table. The box was large enough to hold sheets of paper, but when the Aes Sedai opened the lid a crack, all she pulled out was a ring carved from stone, all flecks and stripes of blue and brown and red, and too large to be a finger ring. Here, child. Egwene shifted the papers to take it, and her eyes widened in surprise. The ring certainly looked like stone, but it felt harder than steel and heavier than lead, and the circle of it was twisted. If she ran a finger along one edge, it would go around twice, inside as well as out. It only had one edge. She moved her finger along that edge twice, just to convince herself. Corianne and Nadale, Varen said, had that Tyrangriel in her possession for most of her life. You will keep it now. Egwene almost dropped the ring. A Tarangriel? I am to keep a Tarangriel? Varen seemed not to notice her shock. According to her, it eases the passage to tell Iran Riyadh. She claimed it would work for those without talent, as well as for Aes Sedai, so long as you were touching it when you sleep. There are dangers, of course. Tell Iran Riyadh is not like other dreams. What happens there is real. You are actually there, instead of just glimpsing it. She pushed back the sleeve of her dress, revealing a faded scar the length of her forearm. I tried it myself once, some years ago. Anaya's healing did not work as well as it should have. Remember that. The Aes Sedai let her sleeve cover the scar again. I will be careful, Varen Sedai. Real? My dreams are bad enough as they are. I want no dreams that leave scars. I'll put it in a sack and stick it in a dark corner and leave it there. I'll... But she wanted to learn. She wanted to be Aes Sedai. And now I said I had been a dreamer in nearly five hundred years. I'll be very careful. She slipped the ring into her pouch and tugged the drawstrings tight, and then picked up the papers Varen had given her. Remember to keep it hidden, child. No novice or even an accepted should have a thing like that in her possession. But it may prove useful to you. Keep it hidden. Yes, Varen said I. 
Remembering Varen's scar, she almost wished another eyes that I would come along and take it from her right then. I doubt Egwene ever imagined that on returning to the White Tower, she would be left so much to her own devices. She's expecting structure and safety, and she gets neither. Instead, she gets this horrible, dangerous mission, and she gets this sketchy brown sister who's like, here's this Tarangriel. Shh, don't tell anybody about it. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. And just basically, like, given this Tarangriel and thrown out into the water and told happy swimming. Good luck. And it's like what I was talking about several episodes ago with the White Tower being kind of like a service academy and how RJ wants to get the girls out as much as he can because he wants them earning field commissions instead. And I feel like that's kind of what this is. He gets her there and he immediately throws a whole bunch of things at her where she's got to do what amounts to field work. And basically it's like there's no time for school here. There's no time for studying, there's no time for book learning, there's just no time. So, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Egwene's acceptance test. Honestly, I don't think her fears are very interesting. I think the fact that it's Rand-centric is disappointing, and I also don't think that that's particularly realistic. I think that the way back for what was being Rand-centric, where she had a baby and a life with him, that might be realistic. But I think the fact that the way back for what is, is a scene of her walking through Camelin, dodging Shadowspawn, and she has to leave Rand pinned down as Murderer hunting him, I think that's totally unrealistic. I feel like the way back for what is for Egwene would be the Shanshan. And I feel like RJ needed some kind of device to have Egwene find out that 13 Murderer and 13 Dreadlords can turn someone to the Shadow against their will. And so he just kind of stuck it in Egwene's acceptance test because he figured it would just be easiest so that when she comes stumbling out, she can ask Shiriam, yo, is this true? And Shiriam, who is Black Aja, has access both to that information and also doesn't even bat an eye when Egwene uses male pronouns and says he said they could turn him to the shadow, which I always thought was just a mistake on RJ's part because it never occurred to me that, oh, Shiriam is Black Aja and therefore knows that the dragon is reborn, and knows that Egwene is somehow involved with that. And so, of course, she wouldn't even flinch about hearing of a male channeler. So, RJ used the way back for what is as a device to deliver this information about involuntary turning to us. And while the way back for what will be might have been a better place to present it narratively, there was already going to be the dueling Tyrangriel fuckery going on, and it's actually easier to quiz Shiriam as she's walking Egwene between the arches. And since what goes on during the test has no actual bearing on real life, it doesn't really make a difference, and so why not? I feel like the way back for what will be is only cool because it does some fine world building. And I guess it lets you know that on some other timeline, in some other world, something would have happened where Elida would actually be Black Aja. But I feel like because something goes wrong and Egwene has her dream Tarangriel in the room with her creating the resonance and it causes whatever to go wrong where she ends up being able to actually retain some memories in her third time through the arches and she has issues where instead of telling her to be steadfast, the voice talks about 13 sisters of the Black Aja. RJ makes good use of that to do some really subtle world building. He has Alana come over to talk to Egwene and basically be like, I'll totally do dishes with you. I'm really sorry. This is all my fault. 
basically as a cover because she's a creep and she wants to ask her way too many personal questions about her ex-fiance. Alana describes what happens with the resonance, and it says, The only time I've ever seen anything like it was once years ago when we tried to use a Tarangriel in the same room with another that may have been in some way related to it. It is extremely rare to find two such as that. The pair of them melted, and every sister within a hundred paces had such a headache for a week that she couldn't channel a spark. What's the matter, child? Egwene's hand had tightened around her pouch, till the twisted stone ring impressed itself on her palm through the thick cloth. Was it warm? Light, I did it myself. So, that's a very understated way to let us know that the Tirangriel has something to do with the world of dreams, or with worlds reached by the portal stones, or just that there's some kind of reality to it. Shiriam's belief that it's not real is not necessarily true, and that maybe it takes people to a world that could be. And I'm wondering if the testing Tirangriel is some form of, like, VR holodeck shit for people who in our age are big fans of, like, horror movies or thrillers. So in the Age of Legends, it let you go into a place where you didn't feel very safe and, you know, could experience some kind of, you know, vicarious thrill. But that's just my best guess for what it might be for. But I feel like what makes the scene with Egwene's test interesting, or inside the testing chamber, is what it shows of interactions between Aes Sedai, particularly between Shiriam and Elida. Egwene comes in to take her test, and Elida, surprise, is a dick. She just is sort of like, give the miserable girl her chance to refuse so we can go to bed. And Shiriam is like, what the fuck? You insisted on being there when Elaine went through. Why are you being an asshole now? She's just really being a shit about it. And then after the test, you get... Elida came over, her arms filled with Egwene's novice dress and shoes, her belt and pouch, and the papers Varen had given her in Elida's hands. Egwene made herself wait for the Aes Sedai to hand the bundle to her rather than snatch them away. Thank you, Aes Sedai. She tried to eye the papers surreptitiously. She could not tell if they had been disturbed. The string was still tied. How would I know if she's read all of them? Squeezing her pouch under cover of the novice dress, she felt the peculiar ring, the Turangriel, inside. At least that's still here. Light, she could have taken that, and I don't know that I would have minded. Yes, I would. I think I would. Elida's face was as cold as her voice. I did not want you to be brought forward tonight. Not because I feared what happened, no one could foresee that, but because of what you are, a wilder. Egwene tried to protest, but Elida kept on, as implacable as a mountain glacier. Oh, I know you've learned to channel under Aes Sedai teaching, but you are still a wilder. A wilder in spirit, a wilder in ways. You have vast potential, else you would never have survived in there tonight. But potential changes nothing. I do not believe you will ever be part of the White Tower, not in the way the rest of us are, no matter on which finger you wear your ring. It would have been better for you had you settled for learning enough to stay alive and gone back to your sleepy village. Far better. Turning on her heel, she stalked away out of the chamber. If she isn't Black Aja, Egwene thought sourly, she's the next thing to it. Aloud, she muttered to Shiriam, You could have said something. You could have helped me. I would have helped a novice child, Shiriam replied calmly, and Egwene winced. She was back to child again. I try to protect novices where they need it, since they cannot protect themselves. You are accepted now. It is time for you to learn to protect yourself. 
Egwene studied Shiriam's eyes, wondering if she had imagined an emphasis on that last sentence. Shiriam had had as much opportunity as Elida to read the list of names, to decide that Egwene was mixed in with the Black Aja. Light, you're becoming suspicious of everybody. Better that than dead or captured by thirteen of them, and hastily she stopped that line of thought. She did not want it in her head. Shiriam, what did happen tonight? she asked, and don't put me off. Sheriam's eyebrows rose almost to her scalp, it seemed, and she hastily amended her question. Sheriam Sadai, I mean. Forgive me, Sheriam Sadai. Remember you are an I Sadai yet, child. Despite the steel in her voice, a smile touched Sheriam's lips, yet it vanished as she went on. I do not know what happened, except that I very much fear you almost died. So... I'm wondering if Elida had, like, a mini-foretelling about Egwene, or if she's just jealous of Moraine and the fact that Moraine brought another person to the tower that was equal to Elaine in power, and she's like, there's Moraine, again, cramping my style. But whatever her deal is, Elida seems to see Egwene as a threat already. I feel like RJ just brilliantly foreshadows their future conflict in this scene, and he also very subtly has Shiriam in the background of Egwene's encounter with Elida, and it's so beautiful. Elida is being an unreasonable dick, like Elida is throughout the course of the series. She's such an unreasonable dick that she ends up causing a coup, and then continues on to greater heights of megalomaniacal unreasonable dickishness. And she's facing down Egwene, and Shiriam is her sidekick, and Egwene is already, like, don't put me off, Shiriam. Answer my questions, Shiriam. Already like a little glimpse of the relationship that they will have afterwards, where Shiriam seems almost a little puzzled and bemused, like, oh, this girl's bossing me around again. And I really dig it. I feel like those scenes are far better than the actual scenes of her going through the arches. I always really think of Egwene as a character that is forged in stages. RJ puts her through some really fucking hard stuff, and it's like, by the end of The Dragon Reborn, she has suffered through four of the five times that she gets captured, and in giving her a talent like dreaming, and giving her access and eventual mastery of Teliron Riyadh, RJ makes it so that she can never be truly caged again, as long as she can dream. And so it's like, he gives her this whole level of power, or strength, or, I guess, security. Because it's sort of like, you know, free your mind and the rest will follow. You cannot be held down at the point that you always have a way out, even if that outlet is when you're sleeping. When she and Elaine are captured by the Black Aja, she fights like crazy, trying to get free. Nynaeve gets back from going and buying mead, and she's in Mother Gwenna's house, and there are Leandrin and Rihanna, and it says from Leandrin, Perhaps you were too stupid to know when you were defeated, Wilder. You fought almost as wildly as that other foolish girl, that Egwene. She almost went mad. You must all learn to submit. You will learn to submit. So the Black Aja has to beat Egwene utterly unconscious because she just can't deal and absolutely refuses to submit. When she wakes up in the cell inside the stone, she freaks out at first. And when she sees that she's not alone, she finds a way to take a little strength. It says, Nynaeve and Elaine were beside her in an instant, their bruised faces too worried and fearful for the soothing sounds they made to be believed, but just the fact that they were there was enough to still her screams. She was not alone, a prisoner, but not alone, and not collared. She tried to sit up, and they helped her. They had to help her. She ached in every muscle, 
She could remember every unseen blow during the frenzy that had all but driven her mad when she realized, I will not think about that. I have to think about how we are to escape. And so she manages to control her emotions to a certain extent. She manages to control her thoughts. She is panicking, and then she finds a way to center herself and be like, okay, I'm not going to freak the fuck out. I'm not going to think these thoughts that will spin up my anxiety. My friends are here. I'm not actually collared. And then she feels in her pouch, and she's like, oh, I've got my stone ring still. They didn't take it away. I still have this tool. She figures, well, I can channel until I run Riyadh. They've left me this. Let me see what I can do with it. And, you know, it's convenient for the plot that she runs into some of the Black Aja in Teleron Riyadh, but she doesn't run into Leandrin, so it's not like she has this perfect vengeance, which would be a little too neat. The fact that they managed to just get rid of a couple of the insignificant Black Aja just to shave down their numbers a smidge, I feel like that's reasonable and kind of cool. Anyway, she goes to sleep in her cell. It says, she wore blue silk this time, but she barely noticed more than that. Soft breezes caressed her unbruised face and sent the butterflies swirling above the wildflowers. Her thirst was gone, her aches. She reached out to embrace Sidar and was filled with the one power. Even the triumph she felt it succeeding was small beside the surging of the power through her. Reluctantly, she made herself release it, closed her eyes and filled the emptiness with a perfect image of the heart of the stone. That was the one place in the stone she could picture aside from her cell and how to distinguish one featureless cubicle from another. When she opened her eyes, she was there, but she was not alone. The form of Joya Bayir stood before Kalandor, her shape so insubstantial that the surging light of the sword shone through her. The crystal sword no longer merely glittered with refracted light. In pulses it glowed, as if some light inside it were being uncovered, then covered and uncovered again. The black sister started with surprise and spun to face Egwene. How? You were shielded! Your dreaming is at an end. Before the first words were out of the woman's mouth, Egwene reached for Sidar again, wove the complicated flow of spirit as she remembered it being used against her and cut Joya by year off from the source. The dark friend's eyes widened, those cruel eyes so incongruous in that beautiful, kindly face, but Egwene was already weaving air. The other woman's form might seem like mist, but the bonds held it. It seemed to Egwene that there was no effort involved in holding both flows in their weaving, there was sweat on Joya Bayer's forehead as she walked closer. You have a Terangriel. Fear was plain on the woman's face, but her voice fought to hide it. That must be it. A Terangriel that escaped us and one that does not require channeling. Do you think it will do you any good, girl? Whatever you do here, it cannot affect what happens in the real world. Teleron Riyad is a dream. When I wake, I will take your Terangriel from you myself. Be careful what you do, lest I have reason to be angry when I come to your cell. Egwene smiled at her. Are you certain you will wake, dark friend? If your Tyrangriel requires channeling, why did you not wake as soon as I shielded you? Perhaps you cannot wake so long as you were shielded here. Her smile faded away. The effort of smiling at this woman was more than she could bear. A woman once showed me a scar she received in Teleron Riyadh, dark friend. What happens here is still real when you wake. The sweat rolled down the black sister's smooth, ageless face now. Egwene wondered if she thought she was about to die. She almost wished she were cruel enough to do that. Most of the unseen blows she had received had come from this woman, like a pounding of fists, for no reason more than that she had kept trying to crawl away. No reason more than that she had refused to give up. 
A woman who can give such beatings, she said, should have no objections to a milder one. She wove another flow of air quickly. Joya Bayer's dark eyes bulged in disbelief as the first blow landed across her hips. Egwene saw how to adjust the weaving so she did not have to maintain it. You will remember this and feel it when you waken. When I allow you to waken. Remember this, too. If you ever try to beat me again, I will return you here and leave you for the rest of your life. The black sister's eyes stared hate at her, but there was a suggestion of tears in them, too. Egwene felt a moment of shame. Not at what she was doing to Joya. The woman deserved every blow, if not for her own beating, then for the deaths in the tower. Not that, not really. But because she had spent time on her own revenge, while Nynaeve and Elaine were sitting in a cell, hoping against hope that she might be able to rescue them. She tied off and set the flows of her weavings before she knew she had done it, then paused to study what she had done. Three separate weavings, and not only had it been no trouble to hold them all at once, but now she had done something so they would maintain themselves. She thought she could remember how, too, and it might be useful. After a moment, she unraveled one of the weavings, and the dark friend sobbed as much from relief as from pain. I am not like you, Egwene said. This is the second time I have done something like this, and I do not like it. I am going to have to learn to cut throats instead. From the black sister's face, she thought Egwene meant to start learning with her. Making a disgusted sound, Egwene left her standing there, trapped and shielded, and hurried into the forest of polished redstone columns. There had to be a way down to the cell somewhere. So I really like this scene, partly because it's nice to see a dark friend like Joya Bayer, a dark friend who's particularly cold and cruel, get some form of comeuppance. But also just because Egwene is so cool and smooth and ruthless with her, and is able to just unflinchingly be like, do you think you're going to wake? Just hit her with that terrifying logic and be like, why didn't you wake then? If your Tyrangriel takes channeling, shouldn't you have woken up when I shielded you? Hmm? What are you going to do? And just not flinch while facing a really scary lady. I don't know what it is about Joya Bayer, but she's super scary. And it's not perfect, but Egwene has moved through a lot of her shit at this point. And she's hard, and she's practical, and she's ready for the next step of her forging. And this one, the decision to go to the ideal waste and learn to dreamwalk, is one that she will actually do of her own agency. And it won't be so much reacting to traumatic events or taking on a job given her by the Amarlin. It's her choice. Egwene's going into Tel Irondriad to free them is not perfect. Like, they could not have gotten out if Matt hadn't come in to help them. She gets down to the dungeon in Tel Iran Riyadh, and she attacks Amiga Nagoyan as she's wavering in and out of sleep. And she doesn't still her on purpose. I don't think Egwene knew what she was doing or what it would do when she made the razor-sharp edge. I think she just figured that that would make it easier to shield her. But regardless, she slams the shield on her, and then she wakes up, and Nynaeve and Elaine are still kneeling beside her. It says, Whoever is out there, Nynaeve said, screamed a few moments ago, but nothing else has happened. Did you find a way out? We should be able to walk out, Egwene said. Help me to my feet and I will get rid of the lock. Amika will not trouble us. That scream was her. Elaine shook her head. I have been trying to embrace Sidar ever since you left. It is different now, but I am still cut off. She stared at the other two women. I bound her. I shielded her. She is a living thing, not lifeless iron. She must be shielded still. Something has happened to the shield set on us, Elaine said, but Amiko is still managing to hold it. So, 
If Matt had come into the guard room and Amiko had not been shielded slash stilled, he would have been totally zorged. So he could not have rescued them if Egwene had not done what she did, but they would not have been able to get out, or at least they would not have been able to get out in a quick fashion. Eventually, the shields on them would have dissolved, but who knows what would have happened in the meantime. So the fact that they act the way they do afterwards, they're dicks. They're dicks to him, and he deserves the apology that Elaine and Nynaeve give him in A Crown of Swords, because they are absolutely dicks. But he also runs his mouth and talks about what he doesn't know, and also just kind of sounds like an asshole when he comes in, which is annoying. And so while I don't feel like they're right to be dicks to him, I do understand why they're just kind of like, hey, yo, shut up. So I might say that RJ did too much with Egwene's character in The Dragon Reborn, if she were not such a complicated person. He's got a lot that he needs for her to do. And so in the end, he has her master her trauma with this, I'm not collared, I'm not alone, because the collar is the one thing that she cannot take. But over the next year, her mastery of herself and of the dream will be such that when Masana collars her in the dream, in the Towers of Midnight, Egwene is able to master her fear, and she is able to squash Masana's mind with her will. And I feel like RJ did a pretty good job considering how much he had to do with her character in this book, with all of the different layering, getting it done. And there's so much foreshadowing at the end of The Dragon Reborn for Egwene. You know, she's locked up, but she is stronger than her trauma, and she is always free in her dreams. And having broken all of that apart, I think that I will be much more appreciative of Egwene's arc the next time that I reread this book. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Podcast of the Dragon. This was one of those seat of your pants type episodes where I wasn't sure what I was going to do until the very last minute. And then it ended up coming together beautifully and I was really pleased with the end result I got. It was a lot of fun. You can find me on Twitter at Warder Gray. That's Gray with an E. All of my links are down in the show notes. There's a link to my email if you want to drop me a line. There's a link to my Discord if you want to come and hang out. There's a link to Watt Trivia and Games if you want to go play fun games with cool people. And there's a link to the Watt Fandom and Calendar if you would like to have access to a ton of different Wheel of Time content creators. There's also a link to my Patreon if you would like to support the show and help out and have access to some really cool bonus content. If you could rate and review me on iTunes or Apple Music, I don't know what it's called now, but you know what I mean. If you could do that, that would help me out a lot. If you know anyone who likes The Wheel of Time and might be interested in a different type of podcast, if you tell them about me, I'd really appreciate that. My music is by Kevin McLeod. I'm the Grey Warder, and I have never been such an asshole to one friend that the other one hauled off and slapped me, and sadly I can't start now because slapping is not a CDC-approved social distancing activity.